You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 31. We're going to be reading the entire chapter this morning. Lengthy passage, but a very good passage. The stories of the Old Testament are quite gripping, are they not? I think everyone's found their place. Follow along as I read. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted, and if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all of the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said... To you do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired, and paid in Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him in the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs and with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away, because you have longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? 
Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring, did, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for thee as my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jigar Sehedatha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me. Therefore he named it Gilead and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness and a pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning that, Lord, you would be pleased to teach us, Father, from this story. There's so many details. Uh, Father, we ask that you'll help us to come through them and to absorb them. Father, we pray that, Lord, you would instruct us in the message that you have in this chapter for us, that, Father, we would come to see the, the message that the Holy Spirit has for us from this passage. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would impress that message upon our hearts, that you would make application of it to our lives, 
and that as we leave here, it would reverberate in our hearts for many days and many weeks, oh, Father, changing us and molding us and making us into the likeness of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Our text in verse 1, um, and surely some of you might be thinking, well, with a text this long, surely we're not going to go verse by verse this morning. Well, actually, we are going to go verse by verse this morning, so I hope nobody minds that. I make no apology for it. Uh, but in verse 1, uh, we see there's a lot of tension here, and there is, there is something to be said about family tension, isn't there? When there's tension in a family, when there's when there's even scorn in a family. Here we see there's certainly scorn. Uh, Jacob, it gets her back to him that his brother-in-laws are seeing that, um, and they're accusing, really, Jacob of taking all that belonged to their father. Now, for the benefit of our memories and for the benefit of those who weren't here last week, and the message didn't get posted last week, uh, for the benefit of those who didn't hear, last week we saw that Jacob had really gone from penniless to becoming quite wealthy in the span of about six years uh, because God had so blessed him. Uh, Laban had taken such advantage of Jacob that he had worked for Jacob for 14 years. And he basically, after that 14-year period, was completely penniless, completely penniless. And uh, Jacob uh, called Laban, his father-in-law, and said, listen, I want to return back to my homeland. I want to return back to the land of Canaan, back to the land of my father, Isaac. And uh, Laban, he's doing everything he can to try to keep Jacob. They, Laban does not want to get rid of Jacob. Since the time Laban set his eyes on Jacob, he has saw nothing but opportunity. And he has exploited Jacob. Jacob has, has shown himself to be very competent in the field, competent with the sheep and the goats. And he's made Laban a lot of money. And Laban says to him, listen, you know, name your wages. Just tell me, what are your wages? And of course, you know, you can see through that. You know, when you, when you hear that kind of thing, you, you know better if you've lived a little while. And he says to, at one point to Jacob, he says, well, what can I do for you? And Jacob says, you know, or what can I give you, he says. And Jacob says, you're not to give me anything, but just do this one thing for me. Whatever, whatever sheep or goats that are born that are spotted or striped or mottled or black, let, they, let them be my wages. And you'll recall that Laban quickly seized on that. Um, he quickly seized on that. Why? Well, I don't raise sheep or goats, um, but scholars tell us that a very small percentage of the offspring of sheep and goats are spotted, mottled, striped, or black. And Laban realizes that, and he thinks, okay, uh, Jacob is willing to work for next to nothing. Well, that's great. But what Laban doesn't realize is that God plans on giving Jacob a whole bunch of striped, spotted, mottled, and black goats and sheep. And, you know, you have to wonder, as Jacob's flock grows, I mean, anyone who's ever seen a picture of sheep from that region of the world, what color are they? Unanimously, they're white. Now, can you imagine seeing Jacob out in the field with his sheep? You'd be wondering, what kind of sheep are these? Because there isn't a white one in the bunch. The scholars tell us that it's like six, maybe seven percent of sheep are born this way. Um, and here, Jacob, uh, 
he has his entire flock all spotted, modeled. And that's the backdrop of what's going on here. Now, what's happening? Laban's flock, who has grown, has grown to great proportions, largely on the back of Jacob. But Jacob, I mean, Laban had hardly nothing when Jacob showed up. His flock, which was very huge, has now become quite small. Jacob's flock, which he had none only six years earlier, has become huge. Now, if you were looking at this through the lenses of unbelieving eyes, what would it look like to you? It would look like Jacob is stealing your inheritance, wouldn't it? Now, we have a little, I, I develop all this because I want you to understand, verses 1 and 2 are reflective of danger. A lot of money. We're talking about a lot of money here. Uh, people have been murdered for a lot less than this. And Jacob is realizing, you know, I'm not too favored around here. And when you come to verse 2, Jacob saw that Laban himself did not regard him as fa with favor as before. It's, it, the bottom line with Laban's relationship with Jacob is this. As long as Jacob is prosperous for Laban, Jacob is in. His entire relationship with Laban is predicated on Laban's prosperity. Now, Laban has been losing ground. He's been losing ground rapidly. So, uh, his favor towards Jacob has diminished greatly. And in verse 3, here Jacob has a clear call from, a clear command from the Lord. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I'll be with you. This is what the Lord says to Jacob. Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. What comforting words in the midst of this. I mean, if we were Jacob right now, you'd be, you'd be pretty concerned about your life. Uh, there's a lot of things, as we see, as we go down through this, that you'd be concerned with. But before we move on from here, there's, there's quite a lesson in God's providence right here for us. I don't think it's the main lesson, but it is one of the themes of this chapter. There's a lot of times when the Lord is getting ready to move us, He makes us really uncomfortable. I don't know if you've, some of you have walked with the Lord for a while. You, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When He's getting ready to move you, He'll make you really uncomfortable uh, so that you'll move. Now, don't take that as an absolute. I mean, some of us are really uncomfortable right now, and I don't want you to leave here thinking, okay, being I'm so uncomfortable right now, the Lord's getting ready to move me. That sounds like a great... No, sometimes He's making you uncomfortable because He wants to teach us something, and we're to be uncomfortable through that instruction. That's often the case too. Uh, but here, um, Jacob has a clear command from the Lord uh, to leave. So what does Jacob do? There's another powerful lesson in here for us. In verse 4, he calls Rachel and Leah, his two wives, into the field uh, where his flock was. Now, why would he call them into the field? Because he wants to have a, a private conversation with them. We've learned from earlier messages that you don't do that in a tent, do you? You remember when Isaac called uh, Esau into the tent and tried to have a private conversation with him? Well, it was overheard, wasn't it? Um, Jacob knows better. He calls his wives into the field. But notice what he does. He's really demonstrating some leadership here. He says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 6, you know that I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. 
If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the stripes shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Notice what Jacob is saying here. Jacob recognizes, while, the, while his brother-in-laws think Jacob's the one that does this, Jacob recognizes that it's the Lord who's taken the flock from Laban and given them to him. And then Laban keeps changing his tune. You know, uh, if, if they're striped, they're mine. Well, what would happen? Uh, they would all become striped. You know, all the offspring would be striped. Or if they're spotted, they're mine. Then they all be spotted. Laban can't win this. Why? Because he's under the judgment hand of God. He can't win this. God is judging him. Thus, God has taken away all the livestock. Verse 10, in the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats mated with the flock and were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of the God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I've seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now rise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Last week, I, I, pointed, I pointed you to the passage uh, to explain where would Jacob ever get the idea to go to his father-in-law and say, listen, do this for me. Give me all of the sheep that are spotted or give me all the sheep that are black or give me all the goats. That are where would Jacob come up with that idea? Well, God, God visited him in a dream and told him this is how it was going to be. And this is how it was, isn't it? And he's explaining this to his wives. Now, through the course of all of this, if we've been wondering where Rachel and Leah are in all of this, you'll recall like a couple of chapters ago, Jacob was madly in love with Rachel, right? He agreed to work seven years for her hand in marriage. And you remember the verse, the seven years just seemed like a few days because of the love he had for Rachel. And then on the night of his wedding, Laban switches Rachel for her sister Leah. And then Jacob is required to work another seven years for, for Rachel. You remember that. And of course, now Jacob at this point is, uh, he has two wives. Actually, he has four at this point. And that's a story that we've already covered. But in case you're wondering where Rachel and Leah are in this, we get an insight in this is verses 14, 15, and 16. Because Rachel responds to Jacob and, and Leah responds to Jacob. And they say together in one accord, they say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. What are they saying? They're saying we're like slaves. And Laban has treated Jacob like a slave, really. And he really is treating his daughters that way too, like pawns on his chessboard for his own kingdom's advancement, hasn't he? And we see where they are. Now in verse 16, they say, the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. And notice what they say in the last sentence of verse 16. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Now this is profound. And let me just give you an illustration from my own life, from Tammy and I's uh, life, which some of you have heard many times. I, this is how profound this is. Um, I have always been inter interested in church planning. Even before I was, before I was uh, matriculated into Geneva College and started my undergraduate work, church planning was always something that seemed thrilling to me, but I never took it seriously. And this is why, because Tammy wasn't so excited about it. 
And here's the thing. If I'm being called to church planning, then she is too. Because any time that, and, and I speak to those who are married this morning, any time our lives are changed that much, our, our spouse's lives are changed this much as well. Now, I would never take church planning real seriously. And I just attribute it to the fact, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and just have this, all this entrepreneurial wiring. That's all that's going on here. I couldn't take church planning seriously unless Tammy was equally excited about church planting. Well, guess what happened? Some of you know the story. The Lord worked in her heart. And like, it was almost like a flip of a switch where she was like, you know what? We're supposed to do this. And it wasn't begrudging. She was excited about it. What did God do? He changed her heart. That wasn't the only affirmation that I had that we were to do this, but that was one of the, probably one of the leading affirmations. Now, what is Jacob doing with his wives? He's doing the same thing. He's going to his wife and saying, listen, it's time for us to leave. And this is what God has done. And this is what God is doing. And notice how they answer. They say, whatever God has said to you, do. Why is this so important? It's so important because the family unit is on the same page. They're on the same page. An important lesson. It's not the main lesson of the passage, but it's another important lesson that we get from the passage. So what's Jacob do in verse 17? He immediately rises. He sets his sons on wives and wives on his camels. Verse 18, he begins to move all his possessions uh, that he had acquired and sets them off to the land of Canaan. Now, we might wonder, where is Laban at when all this is going on? Verse 19 uh, answers that question. Laban had gone to shear his sheep. And then we, have some, we see something that's pretty unfortunate in verse, uh, verse 19. We're told that Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now, what is up with that? Um, well, comment, there's a lot of ink spilled on this one. There's, there's been a number of proposals as to why she does this. One is that you'll recall that Laban used to use, he, he practiced the occultic practice of divination. And uh, perhaps he used these, these idols to do his divination. And Rachel did not want him, her father, to discover where they were. That's one proposal that's given. Another proposal is, and we learn from archaeological evidence, that in the ancients, uh, to have possession of these, these household gods uh, was somehow connected with the inheritance. So she could have stole those gods thinking that this validated the fact that the inheritance was rightfully hers. That's another proposal. There's a third proposal, and the third proposal goes like this. It's good old-fashioned idolatry. It's good old-fashioned idolatry. I don't know her heart. It looks like it could be good old-fashioned idolatry. I don't know. It's unfortunate. In verse 20, we're told Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, but not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had. Verse 21, set his face toward the hill country. In verse 22, Laban discovers, that's the third day since Jacob had fled, he discovers Jacob is gone. Verse 23, he gets his kinsmen and he pursues him for seven days. And we need to think of this pursuit really. Uh, if we were watching this on TV, we would, this pursuit would probably be looked by the screencasters who'd probably come across as a somewhat of a military pursuit. Um, J Laban is on their tail, and he, he is very much um, 
chasing them. Um, and we could probably think that his intentions are the very worst when he catches up to Jacob. But something happens in verse 24 that's really amazing. In verse 24, God comes to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, those of you who have been with us in the whole study of this, you, you, might, you might be thinking, wait a second, are we talking about the same Laban? You know what I mean? God is coming to Laban in a dream. And I think it's interesting that Moses, the author of Genesis, qualifies this and says that God came to Laban, the Aramean. Uh, so we'd be like, well, yeah, it's the same character. Um, God actually comes to him in a dream. And what does he do? He restrains him. And here we see another lesson in providence here, where God is restraining the enemies of his people. He restrains him. And he says to him in verse 24 at the end, he says, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, don't bring any harm. Don't bring any harm. So Laban overtakes Jacob in verse 25. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country. Laban does the same. Laban confronts Jacob in verse 26. He says, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Notice the accusation. Jacob does not have his daughters like captives of the sword. You'll recall, they're on the same page. Jacob has called them out of the field. Now, Laban doesn't know this, but Jacob has called his wives out into the field. He's explained to them everything, and they said, listen, let's do it. And it probably is inconceivable to Laban that his daughters would actually like to get away from him. It's probably inconceivable to him. But verse 27, he says, Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth, songs, and with tambourine and lyre? You almost want to giggle and laugh at this one, don't you? In other words, what's Laban saying? Hey, if you'd have just told me it's time for you to pack it up and go, I mean, we'd have thrown you a party. Do you think that's what would happen? Hardly not. That's why he's been pursuing him the way he's been pursuing him, because he wants to lead him back to have a party for him. I don't think so. He says, you've done foolishly at the end of verse 28. He says, it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now because you've gone away, because you've longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Now, Jacob knows nothing about this. Jacob answers and said to Laban, well, he's answering the first question. He goes, I was afraid. You know, I, I fled secretly because I was afraid. I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. That's probably exactly what would have happened. Let's think about that for a moment. When Jacob comes into Baden Aram, what does he have? He has nothing. Now, could you imagine him being forced to leave that way? He would have worked the last 20 years for nothing. He would have lost his wives. He would have lost his children. He would have lost his flocks. That's pretty hard to imagine, isn't it? Can you imagine being forced to leave your family? That's the stakes here. You see how, how high the stakes are here. That's probably exactly what Laban would have done if he wouldn't have killed Jacob. He may have just killed him. And um, Jacob continues... He says, uh, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live in the presence. This is verse 32. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not 
know that Rachel had stolen them. In verses 33 and onward, we find Laban really stooping to new, to new lows here. What is Laban actually doing? He goes into the tents of Leah and to the tent of Rachel and to the tent of Jacob, and he does what we might say today. He tosses the place. I mean, really. I mean, I can't imagine that he, 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 he went through the tents, and I can't imagine he very neatly like pulled everything out and then very neatly put everything back in. He's looking for his gods. So what's he doing? He's tossing the tents. He's tossing them. And he tosses the place, but he did not find them. And, and God, I remember, I remember years ago reading the Old Testament and giggling and laughing. And Tammy would be like, what's so funny? I'm like, the Old Testament. She goes, what do you mean? How is the Old Testament funny? It's funny. What's so funny? Well, Rachel had taken the household gods. That's not funny. But what is she doing? Where is she hiding them? She's <laughs> sitting on them. Think about that for a minute. Where are the household Rachel's sitting on them. I mean... She's sitting on the gods. I mean, think about that for a moment. If they're really gods, you think they would appreciate being someone sitting on them? Like, wouldn't they do something about it? I'm glad some of you are laughing because I, I just think it's funny. I think it's really, really funny. So Laban searched for the gods, but he did not find them. Now, we see in verse 36, we see Jacob in a new way. We've seen him angry before, one case uh, earlier. But here we see him. Jacob actually stands up. He actually speaks up. And I got to say, you know, a lot of sermons you hear about Jacob, you know, they're just bashing him and bashing him and bashing him. And I, I, one of the things that I've wanted to say through this whole series is we've not been given this passage so that we can bash this, the, the patriarchs. That's not the point. And quite frankly here, the patience that Jacob shows here is patience that I think very few of us in our culture have. Look how patient he has been. We don't hear him grumbling and complaining, do we? Not until now, but it's been 20 years. And he's really up against it. We would have never heard him complain had Laban not put him in this position. But Jacob's had enough. He is angry. He is berated. And in verse 36, he says to his father-in-law, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen, your kinsmen, that they may decide between the two of us. You see that? <laughs> he is really giving him a piece of his mind. These 20 years, verse 38, I have been with you, your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried, have not eaten the rams of your flocks, what was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, the day the heat consumed me, the cold by night, my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. But God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and look at this last line, and he rebuked you last night. Now, what does Laban say to that? Laban answers in verse 43. Said to Jacob, Daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. Now, Laban's response just proves the case with Jacob. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. He says, But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? And notice in verse 44, 
He makes a covenant with Jacob. Now, let, let me start pulling all this together because I, I, got, I got stuff scattered everywhere, don't I? You're like, what would I, I do? You know, it's like we, <laughs> we took everything, dumped it on the floor. It is scattered all over the place. Let's start pulling it together. I, I've tried to give you one-word summaries when I can of each of these chapters. And if I could give you a one-word summary of what's going on here in chapter 31, it would be the word Exodus. Exodus. Think of Exodus, the book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus about? The book of Exodus is about Israel's deliverance from a taskmaster named Pharaoh, isn't it? Israel is enslaved to Pharaoh. Now, what do we have going on here? We have a preamble to that, really. Jacob is enslaved to his father-in-law Laban. And what is God doing? God has had enough of this. And he is delivering Jacob from Laban. God says, you know what, Jacob? You're going back to Canaan. And this is my show. And Laban, you're going to let him go. Now, I pause to tell you that here because sometimes these one-word summaries grab it all, but sometimes these one-word summaries come a little bit short of grabbing it all. And this is a case where I think it comes a little bit short of grabbing it all. I think if I tell you, listen, we summarize chapter 31 with, with Exodus and then bang, 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 bang. We make some application, which I want to do here in a few minutes, and off we go. But I don't think we get it all. I don't think we get it all for this reason. Notice what, and this is strange to us. It'd be easy for us to lose this point. Notice what Laban does. He makes a covenant with Jacob. Now, why is he doing that? We need to understand this covenant is a covenant of peace. Let's read through it really quick. Jacob takes a stone. He sets it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they're all participating in it. They take stones. They make a heap. They eat there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sehedatha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Gilead and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. And verse 50 is like almost too much. Laban says, if you oppress my daughters or you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you. I mean, it's like, really, Laban? I mean, no one has oppressed Rachel and Leah more than Laban has, you know? But at any rate, Laban continues in verse 51 and says to Jacob, See this heap, the pillar, which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of the Father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread and they ate bread and spent the night in their country. What is so significant about this? This reminds you of a covenant made by Abimelech with Isaac. And before that, it reminds you of a covenant made by Abimelech and Abraham. And why were these covenants made? It's because these kings were recognizing in Abraham that he is really gaining steam. So much so that we should probably start treating him as a nation because if he continues to gain this steam, he could overtake us. What is Laban doing? 
Laban sees he's losing his grip on his servant boy. And he sees that if his servant boy keeps on gaining steam like he's been gaining steam, he may decide one of these days to come back and kick his hiney. That's not really the point, though, that I want to make. The point that I want to make is God isn't just simply delivering Jacob. He's exalting him. Is he not? Why else would Laban want to make this covenant? Why else would he feel the need of this covenant? Why would he feel threatened by Jacob? Because God is raising Jacob up and making good on his promise. Now, let's make some application of that and we'll close. Why are we to understand this? How are we to understand the overarching message of this? Well, it points to Israel's exodus, for sure. But Israel's exodus points to something else. What does it point to? Israel's enslavement to Pharaoh is an illustration of our enslavement to Satan. We're born into this world. We're born into sin. And it's something in and of ourselves we cannot get out of. We have to have a deliverer. And that's the point of Moses in the book of Exodus. He is the deliverer whom God raises to lead Israel out of the tyranny of Pharaoh. Moses points to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who leads us out of the tyranny of sin. You've heard this many, many times, but here's a thought that might be new to you. There's a lot of times we think about deliverance. We think about salvation. We ask one another, are you saved? Are you in a covenant relationship with God? But what we don't think about is God doesn't just save us. He also glorifies us. He exalts us. Now, we are to walk in this world humbly in the likeness of Jesus. But don't lose sight of this fact. If you are in Christ this morning, you are a prince or a princess. And it is no small thing to violate a prince or a princess like Laban has been doing. Isn't that wonderful? If we leave here and think, well, I'm a prince, you know, if we swell up and we're missing it, we're missing it, we're missing it, don't do it. But digest it for a minute. What will you be the moment you step through the doorway of death and into Christ's presence? At that point, you'll be a bodiless, perfect soul. Sin will be no more. And you will be a rightful occupant of the new heavens and the new earth. They will be yours. And you'll be waiting for a glorified body. That will be yours. And you will be holy. And I will be holy. And we will be exalted in that respect, won't we? So what we see here, I don't know what I should name this sermon. I, I haven't named it yet. In fact, in my notes here, I, all I have, I have Exodus or preamble to the gospel. What do you think we should name this thing? I think Exodus is easier, isn't it? Preamble to the gospel. Do you see how it's a preamble to the gospel? Do you see how it's a preamble to the table? 
What is God doing with us? It's beyond our imaginations, isn't it? We know it's good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for getting us through this this lengthy but wonderful text. Father, how wonderful it is. Just an amazing work of your hand. How you, you just show such mercy to those, Father, who surrender to you, who submit to you, who call upon you, those whom you've chosen, how you walked with Jacob through all of his faults, and how you've not only delivered him, but it's not just simply an exodus, but it's also an exaltation. No, Father, we see. We see the, the, the application of that to us, that to be brought into Christ Jesus is not simply an exodus out of this world or just simply salvation in and of itself, although both are so very, very good. But it's also an exaltation for to be in Christ is to be seated in the heavenly places. Well, Father, we thank you. Some of us may be struggling to put all this together. Father, I pray for anyone here in this, this morning who's, if you're hearing this all for the first time, undoubtedly you're struggling. How do I put this together? Father, work in their hearts. Work in their hearts. Create a passion in their hearts to do nothing until, Father, you have helped them put all this together. Well, Father, you'll be praised. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.